digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Greetings and salutations. I'm just, that sounded like you were jingling your keys. Uh, the keys uh, have a bottle opener attached and that opened my beer. So, okay. okay. Hooray, beer. <laughs> and what are you drinking? Well, it's interesting you brought that up, LD, because this is one of the beers we procured while we went to Neverland Ranch. Nice. Is that the 11, the 10, or the 9? This is the 10. So, uh, and TJ too, I shared this with you. We went to a delightful place, which you would enjoy, the Figueroa Mountain Brewing Company. And they have beer there, like a lot of it. Mm. And uh, I purchased the 11th anniversary ale. And much to my surprise, there was a gift package with the 9th anniversary, 10th anniversary, and 11th anniversary. This is the 10. Nice. All right. And 3,000 miles away, but always in my heart, is TJ2, the deuce. Holy crap, that was great. Earth shattering, dude. We're the ones that bought new microphones, and that sounded incredible. What did you do? Mm-hmm. Did you christen a ship? Uh, well, I'm in my mm-hmm. office, so plausibly, I just opened a soda pop, as far as anyone knows. Oh, fair, okay. It's certainly not a shatter bottle or anything like that. I mean, let's not be let's not be crazy here. Let's not get carried away here. It's not like it's uh. You know, a 12 ounce Shatterbach in a can from uh, the Spitz Old Brewery in uh, Shatter, Texas. <laughs> I never do that at work. I mean, that's <laughs> super weird. That would never happen. Mm. Hmm. So you enjoy your Sodi Pop, sir? Yep. It's a, it's a high quality Sodi Pop. It's a Shasta <laughs> or a Czech or Mountain Mist or Dr. Perky or something along those lines. Oh, that Dr. Perky gets you every time. All right. Well, Turning to a much sadder thing, um, while my brother was in absentee, we had someone pass that was incredibly important to, I know, both me and my brother, and that was Meatloaf. So I know my brother really wanted to come on and say a couple things about that. So TJ, the floor is yours. Yeah, um, terribly sad that we lost the loaf and um, his musical soulmate, sort of Jim uh, Steinman, within the course of less than a year, I think. Didn't Steinman die last year? Yep. And those two guys, neither neither of whom looks like a conventional rock star, made incredibly unconventional music and somehow made it made it popular. It's it's kind of amazing. They uh, they basically eschewed every single idea about what a conventional pop or rock song sounds like they were too long and too gothic and too thematic and there's too many time changes and bad out of hell is one of the 10 best selling selling albums in the history of music in the world so um i'd say that maybe sometimes breaking the mold is a good thing huh um but it's just everything about below first of all he seemed like a seemed like a genuinely you know, like nice gregarious guy but watching him on stage big guy running all over the place sweating hair flying everywhere just belting his lungs out just he just poured everything into like every note he sang like all the time and it's you know i think there's a there's a couple of things one milo's music is not for everybody 
it's not because if you like conventional three minute pop songs, then there's nothing in Meatloaf's catalog that's for you. <laughs> not one well, thing not that I can think of. Blokes, not even. Well, okay, I will say there is one thing. One thing. No, even that's not your conventional pop song. It was how I actually was introduced to Meatloaf, which was Hot Patootie from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. That's that's on that comes in under three minutes, but I, even that that's technically a musical, or it's even like rockabilly if you really want to put it in a box. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he embraced a lot of different you know musical styles and stuff, but he he they he and Steinman would craft these ten minute long rock operas that had like fifty time changes in them, and I uh, you know and baseball announcers and female voices coming in and uh, subject matter that was really fun and stuff, but I, you know. His music wasn't for everybody, but on a slightly deeper level, I feel like if you were somebody who got meatloaf, then you maybe felt like he got you too, sort of. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. He he was one of those guys that it, it, it was almost on the level of Queen where they were doing, he, he was doing things, he was doing operas, like mm-hmm. full-on storytelling operas. Listen listen to literally anything off of bad out of hell and there's nothing like it in the world nothing no and i have two last things to say one the fact that he's not in the rock and roll hall of fame is a joke and it kind of shows you how what a bunch of myopic uh smug douche whistles people who vote for that are and the other thing is and this doesn't just apply to meatloaf this applies to anybody if you are sitting at home and you see that some entertainer has passed and your first thought is, let me go on social media and say something terrible about them. You are you are a shit stain in the panties of humanity. Oh dear, what what has caused this? Oh, a bunch of oh, there were just a bunch of people. He would do anything for love, but he wouldn't get vaccinated. Yeah, okay, go to hell. Well, um, I got pissy because he died the same day Louis Anderson died. And mm-hmm. people were morphing Louis Anderson's face on Meatloaf's body. And it, for some reason, just bothered me. There was a lot of stuff I saw like similar to that, like that. And people w- wanting to get some attention or whatever on, on the back of somebody who just passed away is really disrespectful. And then re- like, like really seriously, if that's your first thought, sit your phone down, just put it down, walk away. Walk don't away. do it. Yeah. Let's see if you don't have anything nice to say, right? It's like, come on. Uh, yes. And, and, ser- and ser- certainly not in the immediate wake of their passing. Yeah. Can we just take a moment to acknowledge, you know, TJ, you've brought this up in LD. Of course you have. And I will admit both of you are bigger fans of Meatloaf than I am. But I will say that his music, it's the perfect example of it shouldn't have worked, but it worked. You know, it was long. It was completely out of context. It came out, I remember Bad Out of Hell 2 came out pretty much during the grunge era. Mm -hmm. So it was me and all my friends who were listening to, you know, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains. And suddenly all of us were running to the Sam Goody in Wyckoff, New Jersey to purchase Bad Out of Hell 2. That says something about that artist. That's something yeah. very unique and, and I and, think, and endearing a, about him. At a time when, you know, kind of rough, minimalist music was joined side by side on the charts by grandiose 10-minute rock hoppers. And, <laughs> and that really does start with that. Yes. The past. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's just, it, it's terrible. And I'm, you know, I will cede uh, a future episode on him to uh, LD because she is, in addition to loving his music, she's also a huge uh, Rocky Horror fan, a bigger one. I mean, I, I, I like Rocky Horror Picture Show, but she's, she's a freak about it. And yes. you know, she's gone to the, she's gone to the movies with like water pistols and bags of rice and stuff like that. And I have it. Um, and of course, Meatloaf, he was also an actor, which is more her um, 
area than mine. And then he he performed on stage. I think he did hair back before he was even anybody knew who he was. Yeah. Well, the fact is, he was, before he was even popular, he was doing the shadow cast of Rocky Horror. The reason why he got the job at Rocky Horror was because they had auditioned a bunch of people. And he was the only one that could get the lyrics out fast enough to the tempo. And so he was hired. And then the again, the person who was doing the casting uh, at the behest of Rich O'Brien kind of went and was like, yeah, we have this guy Meatloaf. He can do it. He's done it before. And I think we should have him. And so that was like one of those big things. He was in Formula 51. Of course, he was in Fight Club, which uh, like if you guys don't know, I still make Fight Club soap to this day. <laughs> which is I've got for sale. Um, this isn't a, a swag bag, but uh, yeah, I mean, like I, I do, I have loved him since I was 12. I'm not asking you to buy my soap, but I'm telling you my soap is for sale. <laughs> yeah, let's I not forget uh, the film Black Dog with also the late Patrick Swayze. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, we do have that one. We've got, of course. Um, yeah, we've got, we've got a lot of meatloaf movies here, actually, because yeah, we have Black Dog, we got Formula 51, we've got Spice World, which he was in, which I love. So yeah, he was, in, got, uh, he was in Wayne's World, I think. He was in Wayne's, he's the, wasn't he the, uh, the security guard? Or was that Chris Farley? Am I no, getting Chris Farley, that's Chris Farley. Well, Chris Farley. Yeah, but okay. he, he, he had some role in it. I don't remember exactly what he did, but it seems, seems like I, I, I barely remember him from it, but I, that was... In a story I read after the fact, I think that was one of the movies that, that was mentioned. So, so you you're all caught up, right, T? So you you heard our last episode, right? Yes. So uh, for those who just need a little bit of a refresher, basically it was uh, we did Motown 25 yesterday, today, and forever, and that was the moment where he presented the moonwalk, and that kind of changed his life forever because something like 44 million people saw that performance and then went and bought Thriller. So it was a big moment in his life. And so we're still in 1983. And so he and Jackie Kennedy Onassis met at the Encino home to discuss the possibilities of writing an autobiography, which was supposed to be produced by Doubleday. She actually worked for that company as an editor. If you guys ever wondered what happened after her husband's passing. And that did result in a book, which was called Moonwalk by Michael Jackson. And I got it from Barnes and Noble. I'm pretty sure you can order it from anywhere. But five years earlier, Michael had befriended John Kennedy Jr. and Caroline after meeting the two while he was in New York to film The Wiz. He was so determined to meet their mother that he actually tried to date Caroline thinking that she might introduce him to Jackie. I remember that Michael began to call Caroline constantly, hoping that maybe Jackie would answer. His sister Latoya recalled. She finally agreed to go on a date with him, and they went to an ice skating rink and then to dinner. And then Michael tried to kiss her, and she said, if my mother finds out that I kissed a Black boy, she will absolutely kill me. And she said that to Michael's face. This wasn't like an inner thought. Uh, Michael went home crying, but couldn't stop him from wanting to meet Jackie. A few years later, when Michael asked Jackie about Caroline's comment, she was angry. She said that Caroline just created that excuse to avoid kissing him. So this is a trigger warning, okay? It, it is a trigger warning for, I guess, nudity, hostile nudity, I guess. I, I don't know what the proper terminology is, but it, it's a little bit disturbing. I was a little bit disturbed when I, I read this. So Latoya said that she discovered a naked photo of Jackie in Michael's room, which was hidden in a sock drawer. And, uh, and apparently 
embarrassed Michael explained that he had visited a New York Daily News reporter at his home for dinner and they were rummaging through the writer's showbiz memorabilia and they came across a picture of Jackie. Michael didn't understand why she would pose for a photographer like that and the reporter explained that it had been taken by the paparazzi, obviously without her permission. But Michael apparently snuck away with the photo and kept it in his sock drawer. So when he asked what he would do with it, if he ever met her, Latoya asked, Michael answered that he didn't know he would probably faint. Um, Then here comes April and this famous superstar and Jackie wanted to edit his memoirs. And also, can we just take a point? It's it's 1983. I think he's 24, 25, and he's already writing his memoirs. And I don't think he published another book after 1988. So- Yeah. So that's, that's, that's at the point where it's, because I think, I think Moonwalk goes up to 1988, if I'm not mistaken. So she wanted to edit his memoirs. And so finally, Michael got the chance to meet her. However, on the day that they were supposed to meet, Michael suffered a massive panic attack and he would spend the, the afternoon vomiting and hyperventilating. The next day, Michael invited Jackie to his home in Encino. And on this day, Michael made his family and the staff leave. Like everybody, he cleared the whole house. Wow. It's amazing. He still lives with them still at this point. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it's really interesting because remember he has that other house on Lindley that is just kind of like the Jackson flop house. Like nobody really lives there. Yeah. And I, I do think this will come up later is that he doesn't like to be alone ever. And I just don't think he has built enough relationships outside of his family to feel comfortable enough living alone or finding people that he can share his home with, that he trusts. Because remember, he the whole family is very wary of outsiders. He remembered that he wanted to talk to Jackie about his book, but Michael wanted to talk about how she felt being photographed everywhere she went. He wanted to know how she handled her celebrity and he asked her on tips on how to avoid the paparazzi and was trying to figure out kind of what made her tick. And at 25 years old, he felt kind of uneasy about writing his memoirs. Uh, He didn't feel like he was really qualified and he was still sorting himself out. Michael thought that maybe burying his soul wasn't something that he could do so easily. And so he asked Jackie to consider a scrapbook concept. And that book was illustrated by novelty items like his first report card, early pictures, and his poetry. Jackie tried to act interested, but she wasn't enthralled with the idea. She wanted his life on paper, but for the meantime, she agreed for the scrapbooking idea because like, that's the thing. It's like Michael is going to be a hard egg to crack. And so you kind of have to figure out ways to get what you want from him, but allowing him to do it his way. The next day, and here's another sentence that I didn't think I'd have to speak out loud. The next day, Michael took Jackie to Disneyland. Okay. Did they run into Jim Morrison and Rick James who were <laughs> tripping balls on the bumper cars? Possibly. That would be the greatest story ever. No, I think uh, I think Jim Morrison is probably already dead by now. This is 83. Well, great story. I mean, so the Germans would have us believe. Yep, accurate. So Jackie wore a sleek leather jacket with a belt fastened around her impossibly thin waist. And Michael was in his military-styled sequin jacket adorned with silver zippers and buckles. And they both wore sunglasses. So like... I'm sure that attracted zero attention. Yeah, no, nobody would have noticed. Nobody would have noticed. Yeah, just two of the most famous human beings on the planet, <laughs> Disneyland. Not not dressed indiscreetly in any way. They they look like they sound like they're dressed like characters from Greece. So if you guys 
go back to the first episode of the series, you know that she did help him get his autobiography, Moonwalk, out, and she contributed to the opening quote. Meanwhile, Michael struck up a friendship with, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this the most generous and not creepy way I can, but this is where he started striking friendships up with younger boys. Uh, this one was 12-year-old actor Emmanuel Lewis. Now, for those who might be too young to know who Emmanuel Lewis is, there was a TV show called Webster. Stuck in my ways, losing track of the days. <laughs> only to live for. And I hate Wasn't to tell you, LD, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Wasn't that the th- was that the theme to Webster? I don't remember the theme to Webster. It was you and me and then came you. Yeah, I remember different strokes. Well, the world, world don't, don't move, move to the beat of just, just one drum. What well, might be right for you? you. They they not the right man is born. He's I'm a so man sorry. of beats. Just LD. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> Hello? <You there? laughs> All right. Back yeah, on track. 80s TV, 80s TV theme songs is kind of my wheelhouse, in case you haven't oh, noticed. Yes, absolutely. 80s, 80s theme songs are so much better than what we have now. It's just like noise. We don't really have theme songs now. We don't. <laughs> they don't do them anymore. They don't. And I, I want a good classic theme song. Now, I will say, of all the shows that I've seen lately, Stranger Things still has the best soundtrack. And and okay. I will get you into that. I will get you into that show. It is a Game of Thrones. Show. Game of Thrones. Yeah. But there's no, but there aren't any words to any of those. That's just true. It's just music. So anyway, getting actually back to what we were talking about with Emmanuel Lewis, Michael had seen him on TV commercials and always wanted to meet him. And so, you know, I don't even know how they do this, but like, it seems like every celebrity will be able to get any celebrity's phone number and call them. I don't, I don't know if you're given like a special phone with every celebrity's phone number in it, but he telephoned his mom and invited him to the house on Havenhurst where the two of them became fast friends. They would spend hours together playing games like Cowboys and Indians and recalling the story of Peter Pan while wrestling. And apparently Emmanuel Lewis's family became really concerned about their friendship after Michael and Emmanuel checked into the Four Seasons Hotel in Los Angeles as father and son. However, shortly after they stopped seeing as much of each other, and I will say that Jay Randy, the author of the book that I'm pulling a lot of the information from, does make it a little bit more salacious so if you're interested in those stories, they are in the Magic the Madness, the whole story, if you want to check that out. But um, well, I've said this uh, I've said this before, and I'm going to go back to it. I would really like someone with a background in either psychology or something to that effect to, to really give us a detailed sort of take on Michael Jackson. I think that would be really fascinating. And, you know, to your point, LD, the books might have a spin. They might have something that tries to sell the book. Whereas I feel like someone in the medical community may have a more objective approach. I don't know. but Yeah, I no, I mean, I would, I would actually be, I put this call out to you guys. If you happen to know a psychiatrist or psychologist that, you know, I know that we can't get whoever actually you know worked with michael even if he had somebody with him but if you have an opinion i'd really like to actually interview you guys for an episode so if you have that qualification please i give out our socials at the end i implore you to reach out to us on our social media and let us know we'd love to actually talk to you guys yeah because for, it would be uh something that would uh, provide us with additional knowledge and it would uh, make this uh you know this this michael jackson series longer which is totally what we need <laughs> and pork it out a little bit it's so lacking in uh in substance and uh whatnot I really I'm hope we hit five to... episodes guys at <laughs> least five i'm not gonna finish that, 
I mean, she, I mean, LD said something about the platform was down last week. The reason that we had an off week is to hork this out a little bit because we feel like otherwise it's it's so very short. I hate you so much. I just hate everything about you. <laughs> I did some math. LD legit before we started. It's a little inside baseball. Let's take the take the listeners inside for a second. She said, "I." She said, "You know, I'm trying to pare it down. This is going to be no more than 20 episodes. Michael Jackson. The series will be 20 episodes. When we're done with our first round of heavy hitters i will have done um let's see tom petty eddie van halen rick james and tammy Wynette at a total of 15 <laughs> i i am not known for brevity i'm sorry <laughs> all right so <laughs> damn all so all right so like going back to the book the thing is like every book has an agenda every book has a slant and so the fact is this podcast is not going to be something that is going to end up changing your mind. If you think Michael is free and clear and hasn't done anything, this isn't going to change your mind. If you think that he is, and I'm going to say the word, and I'm sorry. So if you don't like the word, skip ahead 10 seconds. But if you think that Michael Jackson is a pedophile, I also probably can't dissuade you from that as well. So what I'm here, what I'm doing here is I'm just collecting as much facts as well, as much information as I can that's out there and readily available and trying to put it into one sort of, you know, streamlined as much as you can informational packet. And so there are going to be things here that Michael Michael Jackson fans hate to hear. And then there's going to be some things that Michael Jackson's detractors my hearing go, well, that's not true. He, I know for a fact that he did this, but none of us were there. And so I'm just going to give you guys the facts that are presented as they're presented to me. And so I'm openly welcoming you guys to email us with any kind of information that you guys have. Or if you think that, you know, if you have a piece of information, you actually have run into him or whatever, and you know, something is true or not, please reach out to us. We, we encourage that. That's why we give you guys our socials. And so, yeah, this, this series is going to take a half a year. I think it's been, ta- it's, I, I think I was 42 when we started. I'm going to be 43. Well, I think I was 41 when we started. I think I'm going to be 43 by the time we end. So yeah, you know what? It's a lot. <laughs> Got anything to say, T? <laughs> Still not saying our website. Yeah. Thank you for checking out this episode. Yes. All right. So hopping back over, Michael agreed to do the reunion tour with his brothers. Catherine asked Don King to assist in promoting the venture. If you'll remember back to our in memoriam end of 2021 episode, I don't remember who the artist was, but Don King put on a big concert before the rumble in the jungle and then formed a record label with somebody. And I don't remember who, I'd have to go back and look to, to who it was, but so Don King actually did have some association with music, believe it or not, and hair. Yeah. Now, if you guys don't know who Don King is, he is flamboyant, outrageous, and controversial man who at the time was one of the leading boxing promoters. So Don King was this guy who would put together these boxing matches. Like my brother said, he put together the Rumble in the Jungle and his hair is in business for itself. It is, it is a, a host unto itself. So are you guys ready for a fun fact? Fun fact. All right. Fun fact. He was raised in Cleveland where he went to prison in 1966 for second degree murder after killing a man in a street fight. He spent yep. four years and then began promoting prize boxing matches. That wow. he did. And King is best known for his boxing promotions of Muhammad Ali's 
Thrilla and Manila and Sugar Ray Leonard Roberto Duran fights. So those are like the that, two big ones. That was the uh, No Moss fight, correct? I believe so. I believe yeah. so. And now I'm not. And he's, all, he's known for boxing, hair, and for saying, only in America. Yeah. Now, when the Jacksons met him, they were not impressed. Apparently, King wore, and this is so on brand, he wore a, a fur, white fur coat, diamond rings, and gold necklaces, which hung on a charm and a crown with the name Dawn on top of it. I'm going to say that tracks. Yeah, the brothers decided that he was a little too ostentatious and not the type of person that they wanted representing him. But they bent to his will when he came up with $3 million to give them as a show of good faith against concert earnings. Okay, Michael told one of his friends that he thought Don King was creepy. I don't trust the guy. He just wants a piece of the action, that's all. And 40 shows were planned, which was projected with a gross revenue of over $30 million deducting $6 million for expenses, that would leave $24 million net profit. 85% of that would go to the group. Half would go to Don King. And seven and a half would go to Joseph and Catherine, which basically amounted to $3.4 million for each Jackson member, which would be enough to get the brothers back on their feet for a while. Because remember, Michael is really the only one that is making any money at this point. Viably, um, com- viable commercially, for sure. Yes. And, you know, even Jermaine, who was with Motown at the time, was not getting the promotion and he was not getting the sales that Michael was. I mean, this is after Thriller. And so, you know, Michael financially should be fine. But uh, the brothers were dealing with things like, I think, living again, you know, living beyond their means. And at one point they were having uh, marital issues and things like that. So, you know, it would it would be a big thing to get them back on the road so that they could actually make a little bit more money. So once on board, Don contacted Jay Coleman, who was a promoter who specialized in obtaining tour sponsorship from major corporations. Now, if you guys know where I'm going with this, you know where I'm going with this. I do indeed. Yes. Don told Jay about the Jackson tour and they needed a big money sponsor. Jay recruited the Pepsi Cola company to pony up $5 million to sponsor the tour. So if, if, if you don't know where that's going yet, just, just hold on. I, I will, will say that I, you will. I, I recall, actually, you know what, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to wait a minute, but I, there's, there's something else I do want to mention, but I, I, you may get to it here in a second. Okay. Did you have something to say, Will? No, just the, the ominous tone of where things are going. Um, we, we will see. Yeah. Jackie, Tito, Randy, Marlon, and Jermaine all voted to work with Don as the promoter. After all, $5 million extra dollars was impressive. But it wasn't impressive enough for Michael because with everything taken off for the promoters and Don splitting the money six ways, it would basically leave him with $700,000. But Michael reluctantly agreed to let Don do the promoting of the tour, but he didn't want Pepsi in the picture. He said, I don't drink Pepsi. I don't believe in Pepsi. And the family had to work on Michael accepting the Pepsi endorsement like they did before. Because remember uh, from the last episode, they kind of had to like nudge him to get him to do the tour, nudge him to get to do the tour. And finally, they they brought the cutout and said that they were going to put that on the stage. So and, and then he finally broke when his mom was like, would you just please do this? So they knew there was a way to crack him. It was just figuring out how to crack him. So they went to work trying to get him to get the Pepsi endorsement. And they they used the fact that Alan Alda had endorsed Atari to try to get Michael to do it. Well, if that wouldn't work out, I'm sorry. What would. I'm sorry. What? 
Yeah, apparently Alan Alda did an endorsement for Atari and that was incredibly successful. And that deal was actually only for $4 million. So, you know, that. I, I don't even know if Michael was a fan of Alan Alda. I, I'm just going to say that, I mean, Atari clearly, clearly knew how to reach its target audience. Maybe there's a reason they crashed and burned five years later. I don't know. Hey. What do we need? That guy from MASH, they'll turn everything around. Hey, it looks like you guys got a, an Atari here, eh? I don't know why he's Canadian. How is my Alan Alda impression? <laughs> Uh, just a disclaimer, none, none of our impressions are particularly strong. Uh, that was one of the better ones, if I remember correctly. Oh, come on. My Catherine Hepburn was amazing. That, that, it was like she was here. Absolutely. Like we, we dug her up and recorded her vocal cords. So even after presenting him with the, the information about Alan Alda, he just said, I, I don't want to do this. I have a bad feeling about it. Finally, after weeks of intense pressure, he signed the contract 4 p.m. on Monday morning. And the writer that they had made it clear that he would not have to hold a can of Pepsi or to drink from one in any of the commercials or publicity photos. So November 30th, 1983, a press conference was organized at the Tavern on the Green restaurant in New York City to announce the reunion tour. Because Michael was so successful and he had two more major hits with Human Nature and PYT, the venue was mobbed with fans. There were over 100 police officers guarding the tavern. And I'm just going to tell you guys, this press conference was weird. Don, Don's remarks. You don't say. Yeah. Don's opening remarks. He spoke of God and love and in rapture and the fact that Michael had soared above heights unknown. And then he said that he was so fortunate for all of us and so symbolic that we have such a beautiful family for the world to say they are humble, they are warm, they exude charm and magnetism, that the love that emits from these guys is so contagious, it's so captivating and infectious, and it got me into this world of magical spells, and I, I can't seem to get out of it. And this went on for like an hour. That, that sounds like Don King. Yeah. So... He, he just basically was like babbling. <laughs> and then he showed a documentary about himself. And then he paraphrased a speech from Twelfth Night. So this was an awkward opening. <laughs> and then he took helium from a balloon and read a, a selection of the Psalms. <laughs> Wait, what else? What, what else? And ate a bowl of grits. Played the bagpipes and whatever. It, it, you know what? I wouldn't have put it past it. I don't have video on this. It could have happened. And then showed the fish that saved Pittsburgh in its entirety. The funny thing is, at this point, our listeners are like, did, did this happen? People are Googling because it's not out of the realm of possibility. Dude, Don King was a weirdo. Hey, LD, I hate to interrupt the 78,000th uh, episode of our uh, Michael Jackson retrospective, but we do need to pause quickly for a word from our sponsors. And we're back. All right, let's get back to Michael Jackson slowly crawling toward the finish line. So after all this happened and he, I guess he finally figured, oh, this is about somebody else. He introduced the brothers and those guys walked out. Great applause uh, from the press corps. And they sat on the stage and they all kept their sunglasses on. None of them looked amused by by Don, who just would not shut up. Then he finally did shut up and asked Michael to speak. And Michael said, I really don't have anything to, to say. I, I guess I should probably introduce the rest of my family. First, my mother, Catherine. And then Don was like, yes, the mother, Catherine, the backbone, the strength, the heart and soul 
and Michael just kind of looked at him weird and was like, and this is my father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's Joseph Jackson. I love that man. That man has truly mesmerized me. And then Michael gave him another look. And then this went on with every single person he introduced. He would say something about Latoya or Janet and Don would interrupt him and talked about how beautiful they were. By the end of this whole debacle, Michael refused to answer any questions. He was done. And this is just, this is just the introductory press conference for the tour then, that's going to happen. But then as a, a special surprise at the very end, they said, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Randy Watson. Sexual chocolate. Sexual chocolate. <laughs> that boy good. Now he good. And then the tap dancing penguins came out. Mm. So. That sounds like a Saturday Night Live bit. It does. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. yeah it it absolutely. It does. It sounds, it also just sounds, if it, if it weren't on the written page and other people weren't there to see this, I would have been like, this, this is ridiculous. Like who behaves like this? I mean, that that's like anyone connected to SNL. Please have Keenan Thompson play Don King. Please, please, please. Yes. Yes. So a reporter asked kind of into the void. So what is the tour going to be called? Don interrupted the family saying that they hadn't named it yet. And that's when Marlon cut in and was like, excuse me, but yes, we have. We're calling it the victory tour. And Don was so like wrapped up in himself that he didn't even realize what was going on. So afterward, Washington reporter Maxwell Glenn and Cody Shearer called the event one of history's most abominable press conferences ever. Someone else called it the Nitro Tour because at any minute now, the whole thing was going to blow sky high. So like he normally did, Michael had all, every, every, he was always filming. He was constantly filming. He filmed rehearsals. He filmed recordings. He filmed everything. And so he actually had this press conference taped and he showed it to all his brothers. He wanted to know if his brothers really couldn't see that Don King was using him. He, he dubbed it the Don King show saying that the Jacksons weren't the opening act. You know, Jermaine, Jackie, Jackie agreed with him, calling him a jerk. Jermaine chimed in by saying, Mike's right. I've never been so embarrassed. That was really bad. Really, really bad. What came of this meeting amongst the brothers is that he was a creep and his brothers had chosen him. Basically, he and his attorney were going to have to choose somebody else, a tour coordinator who was going to be able to handle the business. And all the brothers agreed. And okay, so kind of. Switching gears for just a second. I actually have an answer for you, TJ. Okay. For a question that was asked, I think two episodes ago, where I basically was like, I don't have an answer for this. I do now. Because in 1984, despite his tremendous fame and great fortune, Michael Jackson still continued door to door across the city to proselytize for Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, wow. Okay. Thank you. I, I legitimately wondered that because that is something we knew that Prince had done also Jehovah's Witness. I, I, I had wondered whether Michael had or not. Okay. That's very, can you imagine Michael Jackson or Prince knocking on your door and, uh, um, excuse me, have you, well, I guess with Michael, excuse me, have you considered your uh, future in the kingdom of Jehovah? I have a, a little literature here for you. Actually, <laughs> I actually, I have a story for you about this. Oh God. Oh God. That's awesome. Fun story. <laughs> Fun story. So, so he would actually proselytize twice a week for an hour or two uh, just, you know, to, to, to basically satiate Catherine, but he also attended meetings at kingdom hall with his mother four times a week when he was in town. Now 
a typical day of proselytizing for Michael Jackson would be wearing a disguise, which was a mustache, a hat, and glasses. Is it like the little Groucho Marx <laughs> glasses and mustache? TJ, remember when Bobby Valentine got thrown out from the Mets and he came back with the funny nose glasses? Back, yes, and yes, he came back wearing a mustache. That, that is what I'm picturing in my head with this Very Michael Jackson door to door thing. Apparently, the facial hair was not that great. Um, he would he would wear this mustache, hat, and glasses. He would wear a tie and a sweater and hold a a copy of the Watchtower. And if you guys don't know, the Watchtower is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Like, is it the Bible or is it just a pamphlet explaining what their ideology is? It's, it's more it, of like a tract or a or a uh, or a pamphlet. Yeah, it's not it's not the book because it's it's only a couple of pages and it has lots of pictures. I think it's a, a publication that comes out every week, right? You know, I'm I'm not I'm not yeah. that sure about that, but I, I have a great story I'll tell you about Jehovah's Witnesses at some point. All right. Now well, maybe LD, you're gonna. Hey, LD, why don't I tell it now? I'm sorry. Why don't I tell it now? It's very quick. Okay. Sure. A friend of mine was was uh had a friend who was a little on the crazy side and liked to drink like a lot, and he was sitting in his um, living room watching and he he had um he he was really into NASCAR, so he would watch. He had two TVs that he had set up in his living room. One would be the TV broadcast, and one was the uh, in car thing that you could get where they had like cameras and all the, the driver's car and it was the in car of Jeff Gordon. Right. So he's sitting there, not bothering anybody naked, sitting in the living room floor, eating Cheetos, drinking beer. And there comes a knock at his door <laughs> and he goes to the door and does not bother to put on pants and opens the door. And the lady says, excuse me, sir, have you considered your future in the kingdom? Oh my Lord. <laughs> he said, you know what? I actually have. Why don't, why don't you come in? And I, I would love to talk to you about your faith. Uh, no, I tell you what, we're just going to leave you a watchtower and we're going to go ahead and hit the roads with you. My, I, for some reason in my head, you've told me that story before, but I always thought it was you. It was, that was not, no, that one was not me. I did not answer the, the, uh, the door naked for Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay, but I'm going to just tell everybody it was you. That's fine. I don't care. <laughs> and, and Will, were you saying something? I was going to say, and maybe this is something we're going to cover. Does he officially leave the church or is that something for a later, a later episode? We get the episode, you know, the 50th episode of Michael Jackson. I haven't gotten there yet. Just give Got me it. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Just checking. So he would knock on the door and say, I'm here to talk to you about God's word. A lot of times he got the door slammed in his face. He was doing the rounds in Thousand Oaks, California, when he went to uh, one door and the woman inside whose name was uh, Louis, Louis Gilmore recalled that when she first opened the door, he was invited into the apartment and closed the door behind him. She said, that's very odd. At first, I thought it was some kind of trick. A young black man came to my door wearing something that was obviously a phony mustache and beard and a big hat. His face was too smooth for all that facial hair. And he looked like a little boy playing grown up. He had a soft little voice and he looked harmless enough. I decided to let him in. He sat down and put down all these books and pamphlets from his bag, and he urged her to read what he brought. He gave her a little speech about Jehovah's Witness, and she paid no attention. So she doesn't actually remember anything that she said because she was so distracted by what he looked like. He then asked for a, a glass of water, thanked me, and went on his way. I didn't think anything of it except for the next day, my neighbor came to me and said, did Michael Jackson come to your house too? I said, what? <laughs> She put two and two together and then she almost fainted. 
I have kept the materials he gave me as a souvenir, but I did not join the religion. It sounds like he was dressed up like when they have a kid play a grandfather in the school play. Is that accurate? <laughs> like wearing a trench coat and a mustache and a hat. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just thinking of like any time you wear like a fake beard and mustache, but I always just imagine that it was like kind of peeling off <laughs> the whole time. I don't know why, but you would think, uh, you know, like, how do you not know it's Michael Jackson? I mean, I wonder, was he wearing like the, the red zippery uh, jacket and the one glove? Like the only thing covering up his face was the little Groucho Marx plastic glasses and mustache. Like with the nose? No, no, no. That's I'm, the image I'm, I like I'm, to have. No, I'm, I, no, no, I'm not Michael Jackson. I am just a very involved member of my church. <laughs> <laughs> I bring up his faith mainly because even though he had donated quite a bit of money to the religion, the elders were still upset with him because of the thriller video. So he actually went back and he had to change the beginning of the music video with the place card that we see to this day it right what yeah it reads due to my strong personal convictions i wish to stress that this film no way endorses a belief in the occult michael jackson so if any time wow. the music video for thriller that's how it starts huh now the first order of business in 1984 was filming the pepsi cola commercials michael was still unhappy about the endorsement especially when the quaker oats company offered to support the family jackson's tour with a sum that was 40% more than that offered by Pepsi-Cola. So, but also... Uh, also, so, wait, Quake, wait, I'm sorry, Quaker Oats? Quaker Oats company came in and they were like, hey, we'll sponsor this tour and give you 40% more than Pepsi is giving you. But the family turned them down. Now all I can picture is him doing the Wilford Brimley commercials with the bad beard and mustache. That's all that's in my head right now. Diabetes. Okay, well, <laughs> can we just go one episode where we don't talk about Wilford Brimley? If you want me to leave the podcast, sure. I guess. I mean, you'll be looking for two new hosts, but yeah. sure. I mean, if, if that's wrong, I don't want to be right, LD. <laughs> well, also on the horizon in 1984 was the release of the single Runner, which was a cover song by Ian Thomas, which was released by Manford Man's TJ, Ladies and gentlemen, sure. Ladies and gentlemen. Our federally mandated Manford Man's Earth Band reference of the podcast has now been put to bed and satisfied. Oh yeah, that was super creepy. That's have what you, I'm aiming for. Thank you. Have you have you worked on being that creepy? Yeah, I thought about it. Yeah, I thought about it a little. I, I, I've had time to work on it. It's been a while since we recorded. I, I I had to do it for the last episode, and the critique I got from LD is I wasn't creepy enough. Yeah, I mean we're we're bordering on super creepy right now mm. well yeah, that was that was that was like uh, driving around with a, a panel van with an icy machine in it creepy but i just did yeah it was it was you just had the word candy spray painted on the side of it all right so <laughs> now that that's out of the way all right so from the beginning <laughs> it was understood by everyone involved that michael would have complete control over the commercials his brothers had no say about the footage which was actually fine by them they were being paid pretty well just to do the commercials so they were satisfied after a few meetings with i'm sorry they, i'm sorry they were what they were satisfied they, no no they were they were what satisfied. thank you is that better that's good oh. no you're getting there that, that sounds like a, an animated raccoon from cartoon network <laughs> <laughs> hey cartoon network i'm free so that's uh, a good place yeah after a few meetings with Michael, the Pepsi-Cola executives were worried. As it happened, Michael's friend Paul McCartney and Jane Fonda told him that he had made a mistake in agreeing to do the commercials because the result would be overexposure for him. Michael decided that one of the ways to rectify that problem was to make sure that he could only be on camera for one close-up 
and only for a maximum of four seconds. In other words, he wanted to make a cameo appearance in his own commercial. And for that, Pepsi would have to pay $5 million. There are other ways to shoot me rather than put a camera in my face, Michael insisted, to the three exasperated Pepsi-Cola executives in a meeting in his home. Use my symbols, shoot my shoes, my spats, my gloves, my look, and in the end, reveal me. So he offered to allow them to use Billie Jean, uh, for which he would actually write new Pepsi lyrics specifically for those commercials. Michael wasn't trying to get out of the deal. He just wanted the commercials to be special. If he was going to do them, he might as well make them worthwhile. So on Friday, the 27th of January, 1984, it came time to film the commercials. 3,000 people were present in the Shrine Auditorium, which if I'm not mistaken, what else was in the Shrine Auditorium? Something that's where they held the it was the yeah, it was the Academy Awards for years until the contract was up and then it went over to the Kodak. Grom. Yeah, yeah. Grom, Grommet, Kodak. Kodak. No, Kodak, which is in the right near Grommet's. It's in the uh, Hollywood Highland Complex. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So there are 3,000 extras that were hired to simulate a live concert. Jackson was there to perform You're a Whole New Generation which was the special lyrics to the music of Billie Jean. And, you know, since we actually haven't heard a song this entire episode, I think it's time that we took a listen to that right now. Okay. And I'm going to play this. And then this isn't actually, this is one variation of the commercial. There were two variations on this commercial. And so I'm going to play one for you right now. So hang on one second. And this is one minute and 31 seconds. So that was obviously not the commercial with all the extras, but it, the story that I'm going to tell is about that. So what did you guys think about that, that, that commercial? I prefer Sam's choice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Will, do you, do you, care? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not good dog. <laughs> no, it's not. It's really cheesy. Um, yeah. It's really hokey. That it, was a, that was, that was a real reach to shove those lyrics in there. Yeah, it is. Now, and it, and it but, sounds like that's not even the original Billie Jean track. Like they kind of karaoke did a little bit. 
the yeah. synth sounded like the hat sounded a little heavier and the the guitar or the bass or something was a little exaggerated to me correct yeah it, it does it sounds a little teeny and and just a couple keys off from it but I, I will put that commercial up on our social media when this episode comes out because for those playing at home, would you like a little fun fact? Fun fact. There's a kid that is playing a young Michael Jackson. He's got the same hair. He's got the jacket. He's got the moves. That kid can move. Now, if you're watching that commercial and you're like, holy cow, that kid looks familiar. That's because it's Alfonso Riviera playing Michael Jackson. Who we saw at the Burbank airport, correct? Yes, we did. Rocking out in his car. Yep. Dancing in his car. So, uh, yeah, he was, he was hired on to play like the young Michael. And so like the brothers are in there and you can see how that was cut up so that he, that Michael wasn't overexposed. There's like one little close up, and then the rest are all like wider shots of him dancing with the kids and his brothers. And, so, if, and if you, uh, harken back to earlier in our heavy hitter series, Alfonso Rivera was also, uh, sitting in an outdoor restaurant with, uh, Mike Tyson and, uh, Rick Schroeder when Rick James pulled up took his beer, drank it in front of him, and punched him in his face when he was like 16. Yes, I remember that story. Yes. That kind of experience stays with you. All right, so here is, I, I wanted to, to give you guys something funny before what's about to happen. So uh, prior to one of the takes, the brothers were preparing themselves to shoot. Michael had to go to the bathroom, and Bob Giraldi suggested that he use his personal bathroom. And I do believe Bob was the director of this. So 30 seconds later, he said the scream came out of this bathroom. Uh, Bob ran in and screamed, Jesus, what's happening? Thinking that Michael had gotten injured. And he said, I dropped my glove in there. And there he looked in the bowl and there was this one sad, lonely, white rhinestone glove. And everybody scattered to find like hangers or anything to like fish this out of the toilet. Eventually, Michael just said, oh, forget it. And he reached into the toilet, pulled out the soaking wet glove and asked anybody if they had a hairdryer. <laughs> so there you go. Now, the day of the arena shoot had already been a long day because all the brothers, except for Michael, had arrived there at nine in the morning. Tito, this seems so sad. Tito acted as his brother's stand-in for the, and if you guys don't know, I've actually been a stand-in before. And it's basically to take place of the star for the purpose of getting the camera angles and lighting correct. And so I, number one, being a, a sand in can be really fun, but it has to be done like a particular way. You know, have to like posture yourself and how to move. And sometimes you even have to read the script, but it's a lot of fun, but it can be a lot of work. And uh, anyway, it was about 6 p.m. And the group had to perform their number for the sixth time that day. So this time, Bob needed to make some technical adjustments. Finally, the tape began to roll at 6.30. As they had done in every rehearsal, Michael began to descend from the podium to go down the staircase through brilliant illuminations and, and pyrotechnics going off. His brothers were lined up on the stage and a smoke bomb and pyrotechnics exploded. And that momentarily blocked Michael's view. First, there was a pose that was an unmistakable silhouette. And then there was a magnesium flash bomb that was set off with a loud bang just a few feet from Michael's head. In the book, Michael recalls it this way. The reason for the fire was stupid, pure and simple. We were shooting at night and I was supposed to come down a staircase with a magnesium flash bomb going off on either side of me and just behind me. It seemed so simple. 
I was walking down the stairs and the bombs would blow up behind me. We did several takes and they were wonderfully timed. The lighting effects from the bombs were great. Only later did I find out that the bombs were only two feet away from me on either side of my head, was a, which was a total disregard of safety regulations. The, re- the director, Bob, came to me and said, Michael, you're going down too early. We want to see you on the stairs. When the lights came on, we want to reveal that you're there. So just wait. So he waited and the bombs went off on either side of his head and the sparks set his hair on fire. Jeez. Now, Michael headed down the stairs and the, the, the smoke became thicker. Something was definitely wrong. He began to dance and he did this turn and then another turn. And then he spent three times popping up on his toes. And then he turned to the audience and he was gasping. The explosion had set his hair on fire. Uh, he was feeling the heat, but, but he actually thought it was generated by the hot stage lights. He continued to perform, but not long after. And as a side note, I actually watched the accident on YouTube. You can find it just by like YouTubing Michael Jackson's Pepsi commercial accident, but it's really eerie. And I do suggest caution in watching it. And you can't, you can't really see a whole, whole lot, but you can see the moment where panic starts to set in on him and everyone around him. And I've seen a photo and it does almost look like he has a halo. So just to kind of summarize, he, he, the director told him to hold back, but they didn't change the timing on the magnesium bombs, a spark went off. He walks down the steps, but he doesn't realize it yet. And so he does a couple turns and he's actually trying to put the fire out. And then he gets a jacket thrown on him. And uh, it's, it's a pretty disturbing piece of footage to watch. And I'm, I'm just thinking here, isn't like a magnesium flash bomb. Isn't that what burned James Hetfield? Yeah, it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, and, and remember when you see it burn, it's burning at that. It's a it's a white color because that's extremely hot. That is a hot burn. So when that well, magnesium, it's, yeah, it, yes, it's actually hot enough to melt metals. The that's, exactly. that's actually what you're seeing. Yeah. So when you hear like that white hot burn, similar to like a white phosphorus, it, it's at, at extremely high temperatures. So extraordinarily dangerous. Yeah. And, and it's burning, it's burning to the point where he doesn't even realize it's burning yet. So it wasn't actually long oh, before he could feel pain and he pulled his jacket over his head that he was wearing and started screaming for Tito. The film would later show that while his hair was burning and he was trying to get the jacket off, Maybe he thought it was on fire too, but um, he had actually put the fire out by his own force because he was doing the turns. He was turning so fast that he actually put the fire out. The first to respond was Miko Brando, Marlon's 22-year-old son and one of Michael's security staff. I ran out, hugging him, tackled him, and ran my hands through his hair. And Miko actually burned his own hands in the process of putting his hands through Michael Jackson's hair. That's secondhand. That's really scary. Yes. For a few minutes, nobody knew what to do and no one understood what was happening or how to respond to it. It was absolute pandemonium. Eventually, Michael was taken off stage, given a handful of ice, which was applied to a borrowed T-shirt to make a cold compress. When he was taken away, he didn't didn't return to the stage and it was extremely difficult to keep the crowd calm. Because remember, there are 3,000 people in this auditorium who just seen one of the biggest top pop stars have a massive accident. And 
with no one in the crew giving them any information, a lot of people formulated their own theories, some which included an assassination attempt on Michael. The emergency truck came to pick him up, and according to Michael, he saw the Pepsi executives huddled together in a corner looking terrified. They were so scared that they couldn't even bring themselves to check on him. Uh, Meanwhile, he was sort of detached despite the pain. He was watching all the drama unfold, and later he told him that he looked like he was in shock but he remembers enjoying the ride to the hospital because he never thought that he would get a chance to ride in the hospital or into a, he enjoyed the ride to the hospital because he never thought that he would get to ride in an ambulance with the sirens wailing. It was one of those things that he always wanted to do when he was growing up. So clearly he had, he had gone into shock and I don't know if anybody out there has ever had third degree burns, but for, for me, I, I accidentally, I had a, an accident in a restaurant in which I poured freshly brewed tea onto my legs But the thing is, I didn't feel any pain because it had burned the nerves off of my leg. Well, you had you had another accident when you were really young. There was something wrong with our hot water heater and it was heating our the the water in our old house to uh, a dangerous temperature. And you being, you know, the kind of kid you were, which is, you know, one who constantly did things she wasn't supposed to, uh, went in the, went in the bathroom and you decided you were going to take a bath with your clothes on, but you cut on nothing but the hot water and you stuck your, like, I can't remember if you jumped in or you stuck your hands out, but you had like, I think second or third degree burns on your hands and arms, if I remember right. Oh yeah. I still have those scars to this day. My hands look super weird. <laughs> like my knuckles, uh, like the area around my knuckles, like the backs of my hands are still kind of like, you can tell that there were scars there. Like it's, it's not as predominant, but yeah, like I, I only have like two or three little spots on my leg that you can tell that I was burned, but yeah. The restaurant one was second degree, correct? It was second and third. Okay. My, my ankle was third degree because the liquid had sat on the, like it absorbed my sock and it sat on the skin for much longer. Like everything else, I was kind of able to like pull off, but the ankle was third degree, which you can still kind of tell it's third degree. So like, um, but those are my scars. I did stupid things. And so I got, I won stupid prizes. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. So, um, you know, Michael was taken by ambulance to the hospital and we got there. When he got there, there was already new crews, news crews outside. So Michael ask for his glove so there is a famous shot of him waving from the stretcher with his glove on so we'll probably use that for our instagram because it's a it's one of those like you got to look good for the camera kind of thing and then the video of michael being loaded onto the ambulance became the story of every news broadcast that evening Uh, he was strapped to a stretcher covering up his nose his, he had bandages and tapes on his head, and he had the one glove protruding from the blanket. Michael lifted up his hand with what appeared to be his very last amount of strength and just waved to the cameras. He was actually taken to the emergency room at Cedar sinai Medical Center, where he was being treated with antiseptic cream and bandages. And he was offered painkillers, but because of his disdain for narcotics, he actually turned them down. Soon, he realized that he did need it because he was in so much pain 
that he eventually accepted one. And interestingly enough, J. Randy Terabinelli, the author of the book, uh, did a lot. He 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 was uh, he had a lot of interactions with Michael, and he got to interview him a couple times. In fact, we talked about an interview that he had with Michael and Janet beforehand. And so he was at the hospital and he attempted to interview Catherine and Joseph as they rushed arm in arm into the hospital. He yelled out, how do you feel about this? He asked. Catherine didn't stop, but Joseph did. He glared at Jay Randy and he said, my son is in there. How do you think I feel? How does any father feel when their son is hurt? And he said, but you and Michael have your differences though. And he, he stopped for a minute and he said, do you have any kids? And Jay shook his head and then Joseph spit back. Then you can't understand how I feel. Whenever this happens, a father will always be a father. His son will always be his son. All right. And the conversation was left at that. Ironically, Michael had actually visited burn patients at that same hospital on New Year's Day. He had been particularly affected by one patient who was 33-year-old Keith Perry, who had suffered third-degree burns on 95% of his body. Oh, Michael God. Had, yeah, I can't, I can't, I've like burned myself before, and I can't imagine third-degree burns on 95% of your body. I mean, think about that. Michael Jackson, who was against the painkillers, agreed to take them, and that was one part of his head. So imagine 95% right. of your entire I also, I also think that you're missing the point of the fact that he was in so much pain that he actually went against his religion. Right. But and, still see 95% of your body with that. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And then there's also the, the fear of infection. That was like, that's the big thing. And I think at that point at third degree burns on 95% of your body, that's you're losing limbs, aren't you? Like you're losing ears and nose and lips and things like Could, that. Poss possibly. Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. Oh God, that poor guy. Um, so Michael had photos of himself holding that patient's hand with the sequin glove. And when he was asking why he was always wearing a glove, Michael responded that this way I'm never off stage. So he always was on stage. He's wearing the glove. He knows he's being watched. Yeah. These photos were quickly distributed to the media. He was treated and declared out of mortal danger, but the singer was transferred in by ambulance to Brotman Memorial Hospital Burn Center in Culver City, California. It was later determined that the product that Michael Jackson used in his hair was the culprit, uh, catching fire when he neared the magnesium sulfate bomb. So they were trying to pin the product that he used on his hair as an excuse for what happened. But, you know, they had taken six takes already. And at the speed that he was going, it was fine. But when he backed up, that's what happened. But they were going off two feet from his head. Like that's, you don't want a bomb going off two feet from your head. That's bad planning on the pyrotechnicians part. Oh yeah, it is. So he was released from the hospital and then he checked into the Sheridan Universal for a night just to be away from his family. Uh, his attorney, John, met him there and Michael did remind him that it was Don King's fault. And he said that he felt like something bad was going to happen. He said, I warned you, like I told you this was going to happen. That evening, Michael and other members of his entourage watched videotapes of the accident to determine what had happened. As soon as the accident occurred, John's partner, Gary, seized all the tapes from all the cameramen. He didn't have any of the footage. Michael had it all. After Michael saw the tape, he declared that he could have been killed. And it is true. It, he could have been killed. The thing is, some of the firefighters were like, man, you are lucky to be alive. If you had been an inch you know, closer or, you know, there, there are so many extenuating circumstances that it could have been 
much, much worse. He said he wanted to release the tapes to the public. I want the public to see that I'm going to ruin Pepsi. After my fans see the tape, Pepsi will be history. The tape will be released early next week. He was hell-bent on revenge. But before that happened, they released a photo of Michael descending the stairs with his hair on fire. And like I said, it did look like a little bit of a halo. And that was distributed to the Associated Press. And so that made the front page of practically every single daily newspaper. So after that photo was released, John tried to make Michael calm down and tried to talk him out of releasing the tape. But somehow, some way, this man knew how to talk to Michael. That was one thing that John was really good at. He, he always knew how to convince Michael to do the right thing. And he actually talked Michael out of releasing the tape. So a funny little thing that he did when he got home was that uh, when he pulled in, he took the gown that he was wearing at the hospital and just tossed it over the gate for his fans. But until his death, Michael experienced some pain in his scalp where he was burned. I knew that I could have sued him, he said, but most people felt like it was probably the production company instead of Pepsi that was responsible. At Michael's request, John pressured Pepsi into making a monetary settlement. He wanted $1.5 million, and the company argued that that was way too high. I'm sorry, if you set a man's head on fire, I feel like $1.5 million might be okay. Go ahead and put a price tag on that. Yeah, they would pay, but the accident wasn't even their fault. They blamed the production company. They came to the table with a counteroffer, maybe a half a million. And finally, under threat of lawsuit, Pepsi did pay Michael the $1.5 million. He accepted the money and then donated it to the Michael Jackson Burn Center, which had been established in his honor after the accident. The incident created a lot of publicity for the commercial. Pepsi sold more Pepsi than ever before. Later, they came back and offered him the biggest commercial endorsement fee in history. It was so unprecedented that it actually went into the Guinness Book of World Records. And so if you guys are playing along at home, that will be his second Guinness Book of World Records record. And uh, the next spot that he worked on was the one that I already showed you guys or already listened, let you guys listen to, which was called The Kid. And um, by February of 1984, Michael's accident had been the subject of news reports for weeks. The publicity only served to heighten the suspense about the upcoming commercials that were supposed to be aired during the Grammy Awards. Some people were talking about it as if it was a a debut of a movie or like any other of Michael Jackson's previous music videos. In leading up to this moment, he was given Pepsi a lot of headaches. During a call with Roger and Rico, Michael had complained that he was forced to take his sunglasses off during taping and didn't really want to do that. But he had been promised that there would only be one close-up without the shades on, and there were a lot more close-ups with his glasses off. Moreover, he was afraid that there was too much of him in the commercials. There were way over four seconds of his face, and the film was too dark, and he spins twice during the routine, and he only agreed to do one spin. But the commercial with Alfonso Rivera, he said he wanted to be like magic, just like magic. He wanted bells to sound when Alfonso bumped into him as they danced, like the sound of wind chimes. The commercial was quickly re-edited with Michael's changes, and he looked at the new product, rang Roger with the verdict. He said that the commercial with Alfonso was fine. However, there was still too much of him in the concert endorsement. He was in there a total of five seconds, and there should only be four seconds of him. So there's also one shot where he can be seen smiling, When he's dancing, and he said, I never smile when I dance, he explained. And so, kids, I think this is a good place for us to end this episode. So, 
like I said, I know there was not a lot of music in this episode, but I did that intentionally because the only piece of music that was created during this time was the music from the Pepsi commercial. So I decided that I was going to play the uh, play a different song to end the episode from an album that I know we spent a lot of time on in the last couple of episodes. I mean, like we've mentioned it every now and then, but because I love this song so much and we didn't get to play it before, that's what we're going to end the episode on. So give me one moment just to pull up our socials. So our social stuff. If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT. Facebook rock and roll heaven pod. Still not saying our website. You can also email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And we are on TikTok. We have stuff on there now, guys. You can find us at rock and roll heaven pod. Uh, right there, we're actually doing different stuff but i figured it would be a lot of fun to do like a rock fact of the day so you can guys you guys can see the multiple levels of my terrible hair and uh listen to some fun rock facts about people that might be living or they might be have um you know passed so they are it's literally just fun facts so but uh while you're at it make sure you check out all the other awesome pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com and on that note TJ, do you have anything that you'd like to say to our audience? Bye, buddy. All right. Mr. Will the Thrill. I would like to thank the audience and uh, what TJ said. Okay, great. So I'm just playing this song because, like I said, there isn't any real music associated with this time frame. And I love this song and I didn't get to play it when we were talking about the album Thriller. So now I'm going to let you guys listen to one of my favorite songs, which is human nature. way. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 